the the idea of um, eating nose to tail is that if we used every part of the animal, use that fifth quarter, the the offal that's now largely discarded, we wouldn't have to raise as many animals. And some of our nutritional problems here in Australia, such as iron deficiency, anemia in women, if there could be ways that would uh, attract family to eating liver once a month, then some of our anemia problems would disappear. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Regenerative agriculture is rapidly growing across Australia and often in sync with the groundswell of action for stronger food sovereignty and with farming practices where farmers increasingly place a really high priority on the well-being and quality of life of animals alongside or as part of their systems approach to really caring for biodiversity, landscapes and soils. Knowing where your food comes from is integral to this groundswell, as is trying to eat more from nose to tail. In this second episode of On Eating Meat, where I welcome back Professor Robin Alders and Matthew, we continue our conversation about animals in the greater landscape and also speak about the joys and benefits of small production, thinking small, eating small, and some of the challenges that go with that too. Robin, you've spoken about the relative benefits or other of sheep versus cattle in the greater landscape, and that perhaps suggests ideas about other animals we could be raising or sustainably harvesting. So are there other animal foods uh, that perhaps are currently missing from the big picture here in Australia? I think it's a really good discussion, and uh, and clearly there are uh, Indigenous animal species that are uh, absolutely uh, edible and delicious. And what we know is that uh, certain uh, species of, of uh, kangaroo have increased in numbers significantly with uh, increasing water points. And, and uh, But what we don't have is a market for that. So in my area where kangaroos are classed as fit for human consumption, there's just no market. So the people that have the mobile coal chains that could go out and um, um, uh, shoot the animal where it's been standing um, and get it into the food chain, it just doesn't pay them because there's no market for that. Um, I'm hoping that all the kangaroos I'm feeding right now, um, that some of them uh, <laughs> can, can do, be used in ways beyond simply uh, reproducing and, uh, and looking beautiful on my land. I guess when it comes to the type of animals that, uh, that we raise, my personal reason for, for raising merino sheep is that I think wool is a beautiful product and I like the idea that my sheep get to have a long life. 
They the the ewes um, get to raise their lambs when we've got good seasons. The weathers get to live a long life. They share. They you know we take their wool off each year, and uh, and even my first cross ewes they get to have a long life, and that to to me is uh, is really important. The idea of having these short cycle animals that that never really get to have much of a life before they go onto our plate um, doesn't doesn't sit so well um, with me. Um, and simply from a nutrition point of view, the older animals are, tend to be more nutrient dense, so that the meat itself is a little more dehydrated. Your your um, density of of minerals in particular uh, are increased, and so. Um, what we've seen over the past 60 years is that consumption of mutton is almost so low now that it's rarely discussed as an Australian staple. Um, it, and, and it's been poultry that have we've seen the increase there. And what I was told is the reason um, we got used to eating lamb initially was that mutton was sent to our troops overseas. So it was part of the war effort that we would eat the lambs and the mutton was sent to our troops and then people got a, yes, yes. So, and then we got the taste for lamb. And so now there's been this idea of uh, we want this tender, tender food. And I, I, you know, have we forgotten how to cook? I don't know. People like Matthew are helping us to remember how to cook and to bring the flavor out in different parts of the animal. Uh, and uh, the, the idea of, um, eating nose to tail is that if we used every part of the animal, use that fifth quarter, the the offal that's now largely discarded, we wouldn't have to raise as many animals. And some of our nutritional problems here in Australia, such as iron deficiency, anemia in women, if there could be ways that would uh, attract family to eating liver once a month, then some of our anemia problems would disappear as well. Just a quick question on that about kangaroos. Did we used to eat more kangaroos even five or ten years ago, or has this problem of the market persistently been there? I don't know about. Uh, I can't say about commercial trends. Certainly, I, I know that um, on growing up, the use of both feral uh, rabbits. I was certainly raised on eating rabbit. Oops, and I'm sorry, that's a big truck going past there. Um, I was raised eating eating rabbits and uh, eating kangaroo. If you were out in the bush. If you're on the move and you didn't have a refrigerator, you, you used what was there and what was, was edible. So certainly over the years, we've certainly consumed it. But as we've seen more of our food coming out of supermarkets, that's really restricted the diversity of what's ending up on our plates. Robin, you've said elsewhere, um, I'll, and I'll just quote you, we uh, require a rational national debate concerning the optimal and sustainable use of natural resources such as arable land, rangeland and fresh water to efficiently meet the nutrient requirements of Australians according to gender, age, reproductive and health status. And uh, with regard to our companion animals, herbivorous, omnivorous and carnivorous, and our export markets. That's a huge quote, and I don't expect us all to unpack it here. But but is that rational debate and considered change happening? And perhaps if we consider, for example, crops grown on arable land for fodder and for grain for animals, is that heading in the right direction? Cursory observations? 
Um, I, I don't think here in Australia we, we seem to get easily distracted. We are passionate. We're passionate about certain things, um, but we don't seem to be passionate about the – well, I shouldn't say that. There are increasing numbers of people getting very, very interested in the systems that sustain us. But for a species that, that takes great interest in in detail and getting things organised, we don't seem to have really paid attention to what it is that sustains us. Um, we don't have a food policy in Australia um, compared to the UK or to Canada where they're much further ahead. What we do have, we know we have a huge problem um, with non-communicable diseases, with obesity, with diabetes. So much of this is linked to diet and, and even that is not being taken seriously. It is the problem that we're, um, and now speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a, a white Australian descended from uh, three convicts, is it that we're still not home and that we still don't completely understand where we are and we are not monitoring that change? So human health's not doing well. Our environment is not doing well. But we still want to dig things up or we want to grow things and export them. Are we not concerned about our future? We're smart. We have to get over this and we have to join the dots and really take a great interest because it's a wonderful, challenging problem that we can start to feel good about as we join it up and as we regenerate land, as we choose our food carefully about what we need to, to deal, uh, to ensure that our bodies are happy, that we're satisfying our cravings. It's all doable and it's all actually really interesting and books such as the one Matthew's written really help us to get there. So no, we're not doing that well now, but we, we will get there. And maybe with this time of reflection during COVID-19, it's a chance for us to reconsider what's important in our lives. Um, so just on the optimal use of rangeland, what is the optimal use of rangeland and what's the big picture here, going back to Robin's quote, should we be grazing animals on all rangelands or are there some areas that should be off limits either for drought adaptation, ecological or other reasons? Yeah, look, fascinating. It's a, it's a topic that's bigger than bigger than I can answer, but just to I'll, I'll really briefly, I'll put it in context. Australia loses one and a half billion tonnes of topsoil every year, right? If you put that all into a, a rail, into railway carts and it, that, that train would go seven times around the world. You know, that's how much topsoil we lose every single day. For, for, for every man, woman and child in Australia, it's about, uh, uh, the, 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 well, actually, the, every man, woman and child on, on, on the world, um, the amount of topsoil we lose is roughly nine kilos per breakfast, per lunch, per dinner. So nine kilos for every single meal that we eat. We are losing topsoil at a crazy rate. So we have to change lots of things around the world, but particularly in an old continent and a fragile continent like Australia. I worry about uh, um, uh, the rangelands we use. I worry about the ones that are really marginal. I think there are a whole play bunch of places around Australia that don't get the rainfall to be able to regenerate um, uh, fast enough for the number of animals that are put on them. And I think we use a whole bunch of the country, which is gets a uh, 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 no worries. Where do we get up to? That you do worry about some rangelands where that are very fragile, ancient soils. We're losing soils at a rate of knots, and that you know, whilst there's incredible value from animals in the landscape, managed and done well, 
and with a regenerative ethos. There's also terrible legacies, past and continuing, of overgrazed lands, degraded lands and uh, linear systems sometimes related to export markets. Robin, would you like to comment on that? Yes. Uh, it, clearly, if we go uh, into Western New South Wales and, and look at the history there, it's, it's really quite tragic. It's, it really is industrial um, extractive agriculture with very long-term consequences. And it, simply because, I guess, as, as people who are new to the landscape, we didn't understand it, we didn't value it, and we're still not valuing it. In terms, the, the productivity per hectare is so low that you have to talk in millions of hectares to manage this land. So that idea of small is beautiful. If you need that much land, is it really worth the effort? And, and is there something else you could do um, either um, to either support yourselves or to, to manage that land? And I think uh, where we still um, have a long way to go is, is in monitoring um, that, that land. We, what I don't understand is why satellite images aren't used. Our, our departments of agriculture, primary industry, there are satellite images everywhere. There are uh, vegetation maps. It would be fairly easy to pick the areas that are really, really suffering. And why don't we monitor that and and really try to hold that that soil? I think it was um, was it the two thousand and three or the nineteen ninety three drought where the the snow in New Zealand was red tinged because it had our soil in it. I mean, this is crazy that we're seeing. Uh, this much soil lost, and it is what sustains us. So, yes, absolutely, some rangelands need to be given a break, and those where we do um, want to have continuous use, we have to regenerate uh, and to put that. Uh, we've lost fifty percent of carbon since since uh, colonisation. We need to be putting that carbon back in, and and the great thing about putting the carbon back in is yes, the soil's healthier. The, the whole um, ecosystem is healthier and you're going to have your trees and your shrubs that will be supporting a, a broader range of uh, indigenous animal and plant species. It's also your windbreaks that are going to help you as wind speeds are now increasing, plus providing shelter for your young animals and, and your vulnerable animals. Using rangeland, working with nature is really important. Yeah, that's, yes. And and um, people in the NRM sort of space that we need to get back to whole of landscape planning and and visualising and, you know, uh, different phases and different stages for uh, times of recovery doesn't mean you might not use it in the future. Okay, so mo moving on from the big picture, from landscapes and the big picture questions to the potential virtues and joys of small and uh, happier conversations around that. Um, many say diversity incubates social, ecological and economic resilience. Globalised big food, industrial monocropping, big meat and big abattoirs are very powerful across our food systems and some would say integral to how broken it has become. A shift toward greater diversity and valuing small in our diets, scales of production, along with stronger farmer-consumer connections, 
all seem to be key to the puzzle. So starting small and with a general rule of thumb, uh, how much and how often do we really need to eat meat? Matthew, uh, we all love eating meat and Robin, I know different people, different stages of life have different needs. But just as a general rule of thumb, what are each of your views on how much red meat we should eat per week and other animal meat we should eat per week? Oh, look, I'm no nutritionist, uh, and uh, but look, I think... <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a tough question. It's a yeah, yeah. Look, 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 the average Australian eats, yeah, what, 100, 100 to 110 kilos of meat uh, uh, per person per year. I mean, it's a lo- an awfully large amount. We don't need to eat anywhere near that much. We could probably cut it, cut our meat consumption by a third without having any impact on our on our health. But it's it's all very persons, you know, individual specific. Because one of the things that we talked you talked about earlier was the Mediterranean diet. And when I was in Sardinia, one of the blue zones where they, you know, they, 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 the people lived to a ripe old age, one of the things that happened is as they got older, they got access to more meat. They started to eat a lot more protein at the ends of their lives than they had in their youth. And that was a really helpful thing for their health, a really helpful thing for, for, for living in well into old age. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that you, know, you should probably eat proportionally more protein as you get older. Um, it doesn't mean you eat more uh, in, in, uh, of everything. You just eat a little bit more maybe of protein and more regularly. But um, I would have thought, you know, you don't have to eat meat. Eat it whenever you feel, you know, you feel like it. Uh, three times a week is probably enough. Um, but we don't have meat-free meals because we use small amounts of meat quite regularly. So for me, I don't, uh, I don't sort of measure it in, in that terms. Um, but I would have thought three, four times a week, 100 grams a time. But um, but high quality meat, you know, that beautiful research that Robin has done, I think it's heme iron is you get twice as much heme iron in an older sheep in, in something closer to mutton than you do in a in lamb. So that that, that vital micronutrient that, it, that, that so much of the world is lacking, it, you get twice as much in a, in a piece of older sheep than you do in a, in a piece of younger sheep. So it's it's kind of, it's not just how much, it's what. Yes. as well. Uh, beautiful. Uh, and thank you for picking up on that, uh, that, just that big picture sort of statistic that uh, Australia, about the amount of meat the average Australian consumes each year. It's something like four to six more, uh, four to six times the global average. So that's kind of an interesting rule of thumb, which flips well into your third. We could eat about a third and it probably wouldn't, um, a third less and it probably wouldn't hurt us. Robin, I know that's a curly question for you to do a rule of thumb response to would you like to comment uh, following on from what matthew uh, said is that it really depends on on who you are and and what you need and if we think about all of that meat that australians have been eating you've only for most australians that eat only muscle so you know buying that red meat you have been eating less than 50 percent of the animal so all the carbon emissions that have gone with those those animals that have paid the the ultimate sacrifice for us, we haven't even used it well. We've used less than fifty percent of the carcass. So um, certainly, muscle is and red meat will will have higher higher levels of of iron. But if we're going to be meeting our needs, I actually don't. Uh, my personal belief is that the value of animal source food is around micronutrients, the vitamins and the minerals. If we wanted just to get the right mix of amino acids, if we had the money and access to all the resources, we can do that pretty well by having a diverse range of plant source foods. 
but getting those micronutrients in a bioavailable form and in that dense quantity that we need, particularly for for children with small stomachs, pregnant women with restricted gastric capacity, this is where your, your animal source foods come into their own because you're not just getting the protein. You're getting your vitamins and your minerals in a dense form presented in a way that our body is able to absorb. If you take a vitamin and mineral tablet, you're going to excrete 90% of that. It's not presented in a way that's normal for your body, and it can also upset your the, the, the ratio of good and bad bacteria in your, in your stomach. So if what you need is omega-3 fatty acid, for those people who can cope with it, um, the brain of an animal is going to be a fabulous source of that. And why is that? Because we need omega-3 fatty acids for our nervous system, so that's why it's concentrated. And uh, if you look at um, some of the wonderful Italian cookery books around offal cooking, you can find ways to do that. You've got tongue, you've got kidney, you've got liver. For those people who are um, trying to put together a nutritious diet on a, on a small budget, ask you, uh, go to your butcher look at what's uh, there for your pets. A lot of it will be fit for human consumption or ask, ask your butcher to start supplying the cheaper cuts so that you can, uh, you can feed your families really nutritious food and, and you don't have to have it every day because it's so concentrated. Having liver once a month really can, can turn things around for people who need vitamin A, iron, zinc selenium it's amazing that's fascinating and 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 it, the bioavailability and the naturalness of it so you can actually your body can access it uh such a strong reason to keep meat in your diet yes so that bioavailability we don't often talk about it but what it means is that it's ready to use your body doesn't have to have any processes to convert it into a form that can be used by your body in the the various key physiological functions. So if you have a little bit of heme iron, so the iron that comes from animal source food, what you find is that the non-heme iron that comes from your plant source food, you'll use that more efficiently as well. So we've really evolved in having that omnivorous diet, mostly plant, but a little bit animal source food, and then everything that goes on is more efficient and, and a better utilisation of these scarce uh, resources. Thank you. That's a lovely segue into our next question. And it reminds me of the great quote quote, quote from Michael Pollan that uh, is in your book as well, Matthew, about it's, it's always a good yardstick. Eat food, not too much, and mostly plants, but definitely some animals within there. Um, okay, so what else can everyday people like me, our friends and families, do now to eat meat well? and to help shape a better meat story here in Australia. And you've just touched on uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a lot of those tips and ideas, but um, I suppose we could all pay more for less, eat less meat, but eat it really, really well. What else? Yeah, waste less. <laughs> That's the, you know, Australians are terrible. We waste about 40% of the food we buy. You know, we, we're, we're, we're such, the, the only good thing about meat is that um, we waste less of it because, um, because it costs more. And, and so, uh, you know, the fact that it, 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 we pay a little bit of a premium for it, um, means we value it more. So, but we still waste it. So if we could waste less, that'd be a good start. Um, look, I think, uh, and then we'd have more money to spend on the, on the food we're actually going to consume, whether you're wasting, you know, anything, it's money thrown in, thrown in the bin or in the compost heap. But, um, for me, uh, uh, 
the, the most important thing is to to find this to, to try and know the source of of the meat. So if if there is a farm that you know of that does a better job, or you can buy off someone nearby, you know, it might not be meat; it might be eggs or milk. You know, if you if you could if you can get na- uh, eggs off your neighbour um, and look after their chooks when they go on holidays, but you swap you swap that labour for for a few eggs during the year. Um, but know your butcher. Um, and the, the most important thing for me is really. If you feel guilty, you've lost. Um, and I, uh, I, I sort of think you, we need to aim at feeling good about the food we eat. And if you think you're going to feel bad about your choice, then don't make that choice. So if you think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about whether that chicken's lived, lived a very short and tortured life, well, don't don't buy the chicken. Buy something else. You know, there's you don't have to have meat all the time. And, and, and if you eat less meat, yeah, you can save up that sort of meat budget and spend it on better quality, something that has more nutrient density, more flavour, so it goes further and satisfies more um, and and gives you the things that you need, which is which is you know, gastronomic satisfaction and um, and the nutrients that your body craves. Fantastic, and that that's just further to nose to tail, isn't it, Robin? Absolutely, and I, I really would encourage people to start thinking about their their own bodies and how you fuel it. I, I like to say that Australians put more thought into the fuel that they put in their car than the food that they put in their mouth you go to the service station you've got a choice and you're really thinking about what grade of fuel you're going to buy but when it comes to our own bodies we don't think about it and yet the the fuel that we put into our bodies is what drives us and it's such an exciting way to to be able to not only nourish yourself but nourish your friends and your your family and that and as Matthew said, that connection with producers and also with those those people, uh, if you can't go straight to source, finding those small, frequently family-operated butchers or, or fruit and veg, you know, grocery stores, that the fruit and veg stores that take pride in the work. And it may cost a little more, but on the whole, you'll find that the nutrient density of what you're eating is higher so you won't have to buy as much. So you can drink as much Coca-Cola as you like. You will never meet your requirements for iron. Think about what you need. Where are you going to get that efficiently? And if you've got a food that's going to give you multiple sources of key nutrients, then paying a little extra possibly has dividends because you won't need to buy as much. So really engage, and there's increasing information there. And then the other thing I'd say is, Lean on your elected representatives. Our governments, uh, local, state, federal, need to do a better job. And while we remain silent, nothing is going to change. I think with books uh, like the one Matthew has written with the increasing range of this podcast, um, uh, different TV shows that are coming on, we need to to start to get vocal and uh Politicians really need to feel that they're, they're going to be held accountable for how the systems are sustaining our lives and, and sustaining the health of, of the only country we've got. Big feedlot-fed meat is cheap meat, it's, and that's, that's important. It's affordable to many people. It provides something like 80% of the meat people buy in supermarkets. Uh, thinking about on eating meat, a key focus in your book, 
uh, Matthew, is about making a really informed and considered call out for greater transparency about how big meat is produced so the public can better understand and support producers to make improvements for animal welfare and in the nutritional value of these animals produced in this way. Um, what small steps can we as consumers take on board to constructively support large producers to make changes? Where are the areas of low fruit? What, what are the further things that can easily be done? I mean, you, RSPCA accredited chickens was good, more shade in feedlots, less stress on the animal, exactly as Robin says, pressure on politicians and producers and working with them can tackle now to make some incremental important change. Yeah, uh, look, and that's the beautiful thing about this topic is we are all empowered every single day. Some people feel that, that they have no power, they have no choice. And sometimes you don't have a choice. You don't have, you're not in the right place, you don't have the, enough money, there, there, you know, there's just one type of chicken on the shelf. But the thing is, um, most of the time there is a choice and, uh, and, and, and it doesn't matter about the times when there's not a choice. The important time is when you're standing there, when you can make a decision to buy something that is of a higher welfare standard or is, has a, um, has, uh, has lived a better life, has, you know, has a higher nutrient density. Um, when you are standing at the butcher counter and they tell you, I've got this, you know, whatever chicken, I've got an RSPCA approved chicken and I've got something from you know, a, a free range farm, you might go, well, you know what, today I don't have the money. So I'm going to buy the RSPCA one, but one day I'll save up and buy the free range one and see if it's any better. But every time you move away from the lowest common denominator, you move, you're, you're pushing producers to, to try harder, to do better. Um, so every time you choose a free-range pork, because all the supermarkets have this stuff now, they'll have some form of free-range pork and they'll have some form of free-range chicken. And every time you buy that, you're pushing um, those – you're encouraging the good producers and you're pushing um, all producers to go in a certain direction. And, they, and, we, and we all have this power and, and we spend money on food absolutely every single day. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing that we can all do. Um, and, and you don't have to beat yourself up when you don't have any choice and you just have to get something on the table and you've got no money and, it, you know, it, it is what it, it is at the local um, chicken shop or the local supermarket. But when you have a choice and you can make a better choice, you make the world a better place. Robin, any live fruit from where you sit? Yeah, I think the, the important thing is people have, an, uh, the, following on from what Matthew has said, people do have enough pressure on them right now. So you maybe, maybe you don't make a decision today, but if you do with your family, with your circle of friends, just start to figure out where is your food coming from and how can I make a difference? I, I remember very early on coming back to Australia and, um, I'd ask students to make a list for the previous 24 hours of where their food, what they ate and where they thought their food came from. And I asked them to do it not only for the humans in their household, but for the animals in their household. And I was really amazed to find people who had chosen to be vegan um, and were eating food that was coming in from Southeast Asia and these same people had dogs and cats in their household and they hadn't thought about where that food was coming from or, or the way that uh, some of our dogs and cats uh, are raised and the different breeds of dogs where we've got dogs that um, can't breathe properly and we love them because they need us so much that everything's not just right, they fall over for lack of oxygen. So we just need to think and take time. You know, we can't change the world in one day, but engage a little more, start to learn more. 
and and think about your household as a whole um, is what I would say. Yeah, look, and I think you can compare it to the climate change thing. So a lot of people feel powerless and, um, and, and you should never feel powerless because we all have some power, but like some people can set up a wind farm. Great, good on them, brilliant. But some people can just turn the light off when they leave the room. That's all they do. They're still making a difference and they're still empowered and they're still doing good in the world. And it's the exact same thing when you choose your diet. If you can buy from someone, it doesn't matter whether they grow grains or vegetables or, or meat, if you can buy from someone who you believe has stewarded the land in a better way, um, yeah, great. But you, it might be something tiny like buying, you know, two onions or it might be, you know, you decide to set up your own little garden in your backyard. I mean, everyone would can work within their own life and their own um, uh, abilities and, and, and every contribution is not too small. Absolutely. Talking about small and abattoirs, Robin, you've touched on abattoirs in our discussion today already and some time ago we were chatting about how modern meat processing systems uh, sort of reinforce an over-reliance on too few high-yielding breeds and standardised size requirements of animals. Can you tell us a little bit more about what large abattoirs currently require and what that means for the types and sizes of animals that family-owned farms can produce and sell into mainstream markets? I'm not a specialist in this field, but what I would say that people who run abattoirs are, are really quite vital. They do the best they can in what is a very complex uh, industry. They absolutely don't waste anything. Um, and they do try to find markets for every, for every product. Uh, and just stepping back a little bit from your question, the, one of the problems we have is the way our commodities are, are organized and are governed. Uh, in Australia, we have organizations such as Meat and Livestock Australia that will do the muscle. It's our meat processors that do the offal. And then if you produce wool, we have another organization. So the whole thing doesn't hang together from the producer or the animal's point of view. But coming back to, to abattoirs, the, these folk have continued to operate. And once again, because of the pressure put on them by the, the food system, it was more efficient for them to have larger operations. And then with the push to, to export, once again, with export requirements, um, larger was more efficient in that sort of short-term economic um, uh, arena. I, I think for most people who like their animals and for people who live in, in regional, for instance, regional New South Wales where the roads are hopeless and the bridges can no longer carry big trucks so um, livestock have to go an extra 100, 200 k's to get to abattoirs, we've got many problems. So thinking about how you slaughter animals, where they're slaughtered and, and the different breeds, one of the things uh, that we will have to think about as we move into more challenging times with weather variability and not knowing what, we can't count on the seasons in the way that we could, some of our, that selection for the big bodies is going to have to change because if everything is not just right, that big body mm. falls apart. So we've got this big-bodied Angus now that everybody loves the look of, but maybe it's that real little original Angus out of Scotland that's very hardy. Maybe there's going to be a time when that's going to be 
a, a more sensible approach um, to dealing with these huge uh, variations. So I think once again, the the the, the uh, big commercial operators of the abattoirs are people to work with. They are not the problem. The problem is our food system and then also our regulations to be able to get it so that you can have more local um, slaughterhouses or mobile slaughter units so that people can kill in smaller numbers and animals that don't necessarily fit the, the specifications of the big abattoirs. These are all important discussions that we need to have. Fascinating. Matthew, uh, iterating with what the valuable input from Robin, what, what's this, what's, from where you sit, what's the state of the small abattoir scene that you know about? Is it growing? <laughs> Not growing. We used to have something like uh, 40 or 50 abattoirs in, in Tasmania and now we've got oh, three, four, you know, there's hardly any. Um, I think what's really interesting is is um, it's much e- Okay, so the industry's consolidating. Yeah. Well, it's consolidating, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been brought about by regulators. It's, it's not – I know lots of people want to, want to run small abattoirs, but the regulators would rather go to two or three big abattoirs and, and find someone there who's got a clipboard, who's ticked all the boxes, and it's easier to regulate than to have lots of small abattoirs where the, there's the potential for something to go uh, uh, awry, more awry, because it's harder for them to visit. So if you've got two meat inspectors or whatever they are in the whole of Tasmania – they can't be doing fifty abattoirs, very you know, and travelling the whole state. Um, but but small abattoirs, like well, killing on site. We're not allowed to kill on site. Nowhere near in Australia. There's only one licensed mobile uh, abattoir in Australia, and that's only been up running for about a year. But the, all the rules are, are designed so that I can shoot an animal on my property and and kill it and eat it, but I can't use that for uh, to serve to anyone else now. The further an animal is trucked, the longer it's away from the farm, the more um, animals at the other end where it goes to, the more stressed the animal is. There is no good animal welfare reason to take animals uh, to big abattoirs or to take them a long way from home. Uh, in fact, they should probably shouldn't leave the farm because it's the whole thing is stressful. But, uh, you know, we know the bacterial count goes up on animals that are stressed as well. So, so it's more likely, and we see it with stuff that we kill at home, if we want to make salami out of it, it's a very different product than if it's gone 10 minutes up the road to the local abattoir. It's not the abattoir's fault. It's that my pigs get more stressed by being in an, in an abattoir environment. So, you know, if I wanted to, you should be able to, for all of human history, you know, for the million or whatever years that humans have been around, the last two, 300,000 years where uh, you know, our particular form of humans have been around, we have killed animals and eaten them where we've killed them. And suddenly we can't do that anymore. We're not allowed to kill at home and serve, you know, say, on our little restaurant on site because everyone's going to die. Well, we didn't die out before. I'd be surprised if we died out now from doing something that humans have done forever and are designed to do. Yes, it needs to be done well. It needs to be done humanely and the, you know, the waste products need to be dealt with and not pollute and all of those things. But it's all possible. It's just the regulators don't want to see it happen. Um and I think the other thing is, you know, one of the problems that we'll find if, you know, with these very narrow requirements for animals that go through big abattoirs is that nature wants diversity. The whole point of nature is it's trying to throw up diversity. It doesn't want consistency because that because as soon as the climate changes, as soon as a disease comes through, if you don't have diversity, you have no resilience. So nature is always throwing up diversity. It's not trying to make the same shaped animal over and over and over again. And if we do that, then we're going to, and, and ignore older breeds or different breeds, then we run the risk of not having the genetic makeup 
to survive when conditions change, whether it be a climate or a disease or, um, you know, whatever may, uh, nature may throw at us in the future. It just highlights how we need to support from regulators and uh, our health and safety frameworks to, um, to enable diverse economic players and scales to, to function and to be uh, recognised and safe. I was going to ask a question about uh, small-scale chicken production, Robin. Is there anything else, thinking big about small, that either of you would like to comment on? Uh, I I might just simply follow up on the idea of small-scale chicken production. It's really interesting that on the east coast of Australia, the the biggest uh, increase in animals raised at the household level are layer hens. So people are starting to have chickens and we know with COVID-19 that people are are getting hens, I think, initially because they like the idea of a fresh egg and then they get to know the hen and just having that that, that additional member of the household and seeing how they live and move around your backyard. I think that connection with nature, with the systems, and as Matthew was saying, whether it's a chicken or whether it's having your own veggie garden, understanding all of the effort and all of the resources that go into producing food make you see it in such a different light and it also tastes so sweet when it's been your work and you know where it's come from and you serve that up to family and friends it's a fabulous uh, a fabulous thing to do so it's not only the the small approach to production but it is part of what makes us human, that coming together to share our food and sharing food that you've not only um, prepared but that you've grown. Now, that's love. Robin, so just on the chickens then, (laughs) Um, if I wanted to free-range 50 chickens on my farm or peri-urban block, uh, how concerned should I be about biosecurity issues? And if so, is there somewhere I can readily go to learn the right way to go about it? So biosecurity is important for everyone, including people, as we're learning for COVID-19. Um, and the, the, the larger the number of, of uh, the same species and particularly species of the same age um, and in small confined areas, that puts your, your risk up. So if you are going to be raising uh, small numbers of animals, you need to start with your local council to understand what the zoning regulations are. But then in terms of biosecurity, um, you do need um, to think very carefully about what your potential points of entry are. So biosecurity is divided into two parts. There's bioexclusion, so keeping bad things out, and biocontainment. So you've had a problem, how do you hold that so it doesn't spread any further? So bioexclusion, as they've uh, learnt once again on... Uh, the, the free range farms in Victoria is that uh, pathogens such as high pathavian influenza just live with water birds. So, and they don't cause a problem with that water bird. But if the water bird meets uh, the, either your chicken directly or um, contaminates the water that your, your chickens are drinking, that doesn't necessarily go so well. And particularly if you've got birds that are all the same age, all the same breed. That just makes life for pathogens a a piece of cake. So if you want to stay small, just think about, do you want to do it in batches so they all come in at the same age and they all go out at the same age? If you want to have multi-age and you want to have birds 
you know, so you'll have hens and roosters to be ha- having your own reproductive unit, then your management has to change. And, uh, and um, But reach out to your local council, uh, reach out to your Department of Ag or send me an email. Happy to share some ideas. Both of you have spoken about the intrinsic joys, really, that farmers and producers uh, derive from from farming and from having relationships with animals. It's part it's part of what makes us human. There's also lots of heartaches, of course, but but there's a real joy in letting animals express their animalness, have a good life, and when it ends, to have a good death. Matthew, can you comment on what sorts of income or premium returns per life expended that a that an aspiring uh, artisanal producer uh, might anticipate? Is that a is that a fair question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, um, I don't know. We run a we run a farming hospitality business uh, that relies on tourism in the middle of COVID. Um, so you've got to take three three lucrative areas: small holding, uh, market, organically run market garden, um, incredibly diverse hospitality tourism business. Look, uh, I, I think it's very hard for for um, small. Um, ethical farmers to make much money. I mean, no, no one's driving a Lamborghini unless it's not a Lamborghini tractor. You know, um, they it, it's a hard gig. But I did meet a woman who, she, who who farmed pigs. She said if the price of pork per pig she got paid on average per pig went down three dollars, she'd lose money. So and she was it was about two hundred forty two dollars. I think if it went down to two hundred thirty nine dollars per pig, she'd lose money. So for me. Uh, I would be hoping to turn uh, uh, one of our pigs because I'm a cook and a chef. I'm not selling you pork. I'm not selling you a bacon. Uh, uh, maybe sell you a bacon, uh, some bacon, or maybe I'd sell you a bacon sandwich. And because I can cook the bacon sandwich, I can turn a pig into, say, two thousand dollars instead of you know two hundred forty-two dollars. And that's lucky because as a smallholder, it would cost me about three hundred fifty dollars to, um, <laughs> to to fatten it and uh, and and take it to the abattoir. Yeah. So, so it's a, a bit of a Dorothy Dixer question here, but uh, so are we valuing meat, the animals and the people who grow, process and provide it to us enough and do we just, is there an order of magnitude more we all need to be prepared to somehow pay? Yeah, look, and I think we don't pay enough for meat and, and I think that's, it's, it's, we expect to have cheap meat um, and if there's cheap meat, there's a consequence. We're going to bugger up the uh, the land that, that provides that or we're going to bugger up the livelihood of the farmer or uh, we're going to bugger up the animal. Like we're going to – something has to suffer and offering us in Australia, it's all three. Farmers on a very low margin, um, land that's pushed a little bit too hard that, w- you, that will take a long time to recover if it ever gets a chance to recover and animals that aren't necessarily treated uh, with the dignity they deserve. And, um, you know, really that's a, that's a lose, lose, lose. And so – yeah, it's better if it, it would. It, it's so much better if we could look at and value not only the growing, but I also think the death. And and I think the people who work the avatar, it's one of the most grim things you could possibly imagine doing that all day. And to say, well, small avatars, at least those people, the pressure on a person to stand there killing animals day after day, we're not built for it. But but perhaps in smaller avatars, they would one day be killing, but the rest of the week, um, you know, cutting up the animals or dealing with other things, and they wouldn't be. We wouldn't be putting as much on those people who are on very low, very, very low wages compared to the people who rely on them to put their dinner on the table. Well, that's such an important perspective. Robin, do you have anything particular to, to add to that? No, not really. Matthew said it all. We, 
we uh, we don't value the land, we don't value the animals, and we don't value the people that produce it adequately. And that's been true. It's nothing recent. Um, when I was young, you know, the the advice that every uh, young farmer, because when I was young, women couldn't be called farmers. Farmers was always uh, something that the men did. So the advice to young men was always marry a teacher or a nurse because you need, you know, even you, you haven't made money farming for so long that you always had to have multiple sources of, of income. So something is not right. When all of civilization and the diversity that we see across our societies when that depends on food, something is not right if the people that produce that food actually are not getting a living income. You're both leaders in the healthy and sustainable food space and you both really understand the wide range of challenges that large and small producers face. So how do you feel we are travelling across the spectrum on the journey toward a more diverse, sustainable meat culture? And perhaps just rate rule of thumb one to ten. Uh, okay, I think we are. Um, I think we're heading in the wrong direction. I think that there is a, a sort of a five percent of the population are interested, engaged, aware, and uh, and you could probably apply that to the farming community as well. But ninety five percent are still uh, barreling along, unawares as to the impacts and consequences of uh, of the their actions, whether it's producing meat, uh, consuming meat, um, and I think that that's that's a bit of a worry. I think it's there's great work being done, but I don't think it's mainstream. Wow, that's a very strong uh, uh, image of the challenge, Robin. How do you think we're travelling across the spectrum? Um, I I have to be hopeful. And I have to hope that Australians want to engage with the food that's produced in Australia and that that will push um, our research organisations to actually fund research that gives Australians access to Australian data. Most Australian consumers that are interested in food, from what I can see, download material off the internet and it's coming out of Europe and North America. And we are a completely different continent. So I, I have to believe that um, we need to, to um, and we will, um, push our politicians, push our academics uh, and push our industries to, to work together to get the data to help us all to make informed choices. And even if it may not be the perfect choice, we start to get the data and we can track over time to know whether we're winning or losing and, uh, and really have that site-specific data and and uh, see how we how we're faring as a nation as as we go along together on what is a really crucial part because uh, animals are part of our environment they're certainly part of our history uh, and to to have a sustainable diet a ten to twenty percent of our diet has to be animal source food in my opinion and that should be produced sustainably in a way that's good for us, good for the animal and good for the environment. So final question, what perhaps then is the one key thing you'd suggest I and listeners could and should easily do tomorrow to help us all travel in the right direction or turn that direction around on that spectrum? 
Whoa. <laughs> go first, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm happy to go first, and I, and I think I'd say that same question that I um, that I posed to my, my students when I first came back to Australia is, in this 24 hours, have a look at what you eat. Where do you think it came from? And do you think that that's meeting what your body needs to make your body happy? So just stop, just have a look and think about it. 24 hours. Fantastic. Matthew, consumer consumer agency, you've already described that beautifully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think, um, look, I think it, uh, it's a little bit similar to Robin's in that what can you, um, could you justify the meat you've bought um, from your own moral standpoint um, uh, if you uh, knowing the way it was actually produced? By that I mean most people don't really understand how it's produced or choose to ignore, but more importantly, even when they know how it's produced, if they see something cheap at the supermarket, they'll still buy it and they let themselves down morally and ethically because they buy stuff that doesn't meet their own standards. So can you can you truthfully say that what you've bought and eaten in the last week in terms of meat meets your own moral compass? Um, because uh, sadly, it often doesn't. Mm. So trying to know what you're eating and why and where it came from is just seems just so key on so many fronts. Thank you. We kicked off episode one with a quote from Matthew and so perhaps it's nice to wrap up this second episode with uh, a quote from Robin and her colleagues that draws together quite a lot from what we've talked about. The kinds of community resilience at the heart of keeping infectious and chronic morbidities from emerging in the first place are foundationally interconnected with alternate models of agriculture and social organisation that reacquaint economic practice and ecological regeneration and resilience. Putting health before medicine arises in part from communal ownership of resolving the problem of the metabolic rift between ecology and economy, including recycling of physical and social resources for the next season, the next year, and the next generation. So beautiful. Robin and Matthew, it's been such a pleasure to speak with and learn from both of you. Thank you both so much for your time and for joining me in conversation. If you haven't already, please get to and read Matthew's wonderful book on eating meat, the truth about its production and the ethics of eating it. It's available from all good bookstores and it's a really fantastic read. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.